When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. This episode deals with religious literature and storytelling, and these stories involve a great deal of conflict and violence. These include scenes of murder and attempted sexual assault. Please use discretion when listening to this tale. Hello folks, and welcome to a bonus episode. A little bit of side content to flesh out the main story. In episode 192, we explored the mythology and role of the great god Seth, but we primarily focused on his historical relationship with the king Seti I. Of course, that historical tale has a lot of background lore, especially from the religious texts. In this episode, we explore that religious literature and try to come to grips with the personalities and roles of Seth as a cosmic and mythological being. Our first stop is the Pyramid Texts, that corpus of religious literature inscribed on the walls of pyramid chambers from the late 5th dynasty onwards, around 2400 BCE. The Pyramid Texts have a lot to say about the gods, especially the great god Osiris, Lord of the Dead, with whom the deceased ruler was identified. Seth does show up in the Pyramid Texts, but not that often and most of the time he is not named explicitly, but rather referred to with euphemisms or described in vague terms. This isn't really surprising. Seth's original crime, the murder of Osiris, was a terrible event, one that the ancients did not want to immortalize in hieroglyphs and give any additional power in the next world. Obviously, that event was pivotal both in the tale of Seth and the story of Osiris, so they had to reference it occasionally, but they did it as little as possible, and when they did, they tried to describe it in roundabout terms. For example, in Pyramid Text 357, we get a reference to the slaying of Osiris. In this text, the god Horus, son of Osiris, is described as avenging his father. The text says, quote, Horus will undo that which Seth did to you, Osiris. In other words, Osiris had been killed by Seth, and now Horus would help undo that. In another passage, Pyramid Text 580, we get a reference to Seth as the father-killer, that is, the killer of Horus's father. But even here, the god is not named explicitly, and the reader has to figure it out from context. Sometimes we do get relatively explicit references to the original crime, In Pyramid Text 532, the deceased king is described as having found Osiris after his brother Seth threw him down. This phrase, threw him down, is one of the Egyptian ways of describing death. It avoids the word itself, so you don't give it too much power, but it conveys the basic idea. 
You can imagine that after Seth slew Osiris, the deceased king would slump to the ground, perhaps falling onto his side. In another passage, Pyramid Text 576, we get a slightly more elaborate description of that. The text says that, quote, Osiris was placed on his side, that is, killed, by his brother Seth. But Osiris moved himself. His head is lifted up by Ra. Sleep is abomination to Osiris. He hates fatigue. The king, Osiris, has not corrupted. He has not putrefied. So in this passage, we do get a somewhat explicit reference to the murder, the placing of Osiris on his side, his body slumping to the ground. But immediately, the hieroglyphs move on to confirm the immortality of Osiris, that mere death cannot defeat him. In other words, even when they do describe the crime in explicit terms, the authors immediately negate it with a more positive outcome. So in the pyramid texts, we naturally get a focus on Osiris, as the one who triumphed over death, who suffered at the hands of his brother, but thanks to his blessed status and the assistance of the other gods, prevailed and achieved immortality. That focus on Osiris means that Seth himself does not get that much attention. The longest passage we get is Pyramid Text 477. This text is really interesting, because it seems to be a trial of Seth on account of his crimes. In this text, the gods, or the deceased, make a recitation to Seth. It says, quote, Remember, Seth, and put in your mind the speech that Geb said, the threat that the gods made against you, because you threw Osiris to the earth, that is, you killed him. Remember, Seth, when you said, I did not do that to Osiris, so that you might take control of the land. Remember, Seth, when you said, In truth, it was Osiris that was attacking me, and thus Osiris's identity of Earth Attacker came into being. Remember, Seth, when you said, In truth, Osiris has been kicking me, and his identity of Orion came into being, the wide of foot, the spread of stride, and the foremost of the Nile Valley land. Raise yourself, Osiris, for Seth has raised himself. Give your arm to Isis, and your hand to Nephthys, and go walk between them. To you, Osiris, is given the sky, to you is given the earth, the field of reeds, the mound of Horus, and the mound of Seth. To you is given the towns, and the cultivated fields are joined together in one for you. Thus speaks Atum. It is Geb who has argued for it. End quote. In this text, it appears that the great gods, led by Geb, the earth god, and overseen by Atum, the creator, are leading a prosecution against Seth for his crimes. And while Seth defends himself, attempting to shift blame onto Osiris, these defences only backfire. Every action that Seth claims Osiris had done is then accorded to Osiris himself, so for every defence, or every lie, that Seth makes, Osiris only becomes more powerful. It even culminates in the dominions of Seth, including his mounds and towns and his fields, being given to the great god. This passage is a great example of Seth as his own worst enemy. Frequently within the religious literature or the mythological texts, 
Seth will attempt one thing, only for it to backfire horribly and cause himself great distress. There's probably a moral lesson here that falsehood or criminality brings its own punishment, and that seems to be the primary theme of this text. From another perspective, you can view Seth as the kind of archetypal fool. I use that term in a specific sense. The character within a tale who, while active, even powerful, is often misguided in their goals and actions, and what they pursue will often backfire to dramatic or hilarious consequences. There are elements of these archetypes within ancient Egyptian religious storytelling, and we will explore that in greater detail in the future as the evidence begins to proliferate. But at least in this passage from the pyramid texts, we might get a subtle hint of Seth playing that role within the divine cosmos. He is strong, he is active, and he knows exactly what he wants, but his methods are so misguided that they backfire spectacularly. Again, we'll explore that in the future, but it's worth noting here. Following that court case or prosecution, Seth would logically be punished, and we might have glimpses of this within the pyramid texts. There is a recurring motif in which the god Seth is forced to carry the body of Osiris upon his back. This appears several times within the pyramid texts. Sometimes it is Osiris himself who makes Seth carry him. Other times, Horus commands it. And sometimes, the divine council, the Ennead, forces Seth to carry Osiris forever. It's an interesting motif that might reflect an early form of Seth's punishment. For example, in Pyramid Text 371, we hear the following, quote, Horus has caused that the god Thoth, or Jehuti, will seize the opponent of Osiris, that is, Seth, and Thoth has placed Osiris upon Seth's back, so that Seth will not obstruct you. End quote. Then, in Pyramid Text 606, we hear the Ennead saying, quote, We will not let him, Seth, be free of bearing you, Osiris, forever. End quote. And Pyramid Text 673 says, Nor can Seth be free of bearing your burden. In other words, there does seem to be a punishment for Seth, even in these early texts. It only appears a few times within the vast corpus, but it shows that following his crime, Seth was forced to carry the body of his victim upon his back. It made Seth into a servant, a porter for Osiris, a far cry from the kingship that he had sought. The texts we've described so far tend to deal with the relationship between Seth and Osiris and naturally, these passages tend to be negative. But there are still references to Seth as a positive, or at least neutral figure, one who can be an asset for the deceased as they make their way to the sky. For example, in Pyramid Text 213, the gods promise that, quote, The mounds of Horus will serve you, and the mounds of Seth will serve you. So basically, the towns or the agricultural estates of these gods are at the ruler's disposal. We also have a reference to Horus and Seth as the, quote, two inhabitants of the palace. This appears in pyramid text number 141. And in text number 153, we even have a message for Seth and his consort, Nebethut or Nephthys. The hieroglyphs proclaim, quote, Seth, 
and Nephthys hurry forth, announce to the gods of the south and their spirits. The deceased, the king, comes indeed. He is an imperishable spirit. So in this instance, Seth and Nephthys act as messengers, or heralds, of the approaching king. That is a positive role, giving them an important part to play. Then, we also get references to the deceased taking on the powers of Seth. In Pyramid Text 204, we hear the following, quote, You, the deceased king, have adorned yourself as the great of magic, he who is in Nebut, or Ombos, the lord of the south, that is, Seth. Behold, you are full of glory, powerful one, even more than the gods of the south, together with their spirits. So here, the deceased can identify directly with the great and powerful Seth, and use his strength to enhance their own splendour. Another passage, Pyramid Text 211, associates the power of the deceased king with Seth and with Horus together. It says, quote, You, the deceased, have power over your body. There is no one to oppose you. You are born because of Horus within you. You are conceived because of Seth within you. This passage reminds us that the power of Seth and Horus together is an essential part of the Egyptian kingship. Although the two gods were in conflict at one time, ultimately they were reconciled, and together they helped to strengthen the power of the king and give them legitimacy over all lands. Next, we find the deceased enjoying the power and dread of Seth and of Horus. In Pyramid Text 57, the hieroglyphs write, quote, Cause the two lands to bow before this king, as they bow before Horus. Cause the two lands to fear this king, as they fear Seth. So in these passages, Horus and Seth are treated essentially as equals. They might not necessarily be friends, given their mythological background, but they are equally powerful, dominant, and worthy of respect and the deceased ruler will identify with both of them as they travel to the stars. And finally, we even hear of Seth and Horus cooperating to assist the king on their journey to the Duat or afterlife. In Pyramid Text 390, we hear, quote, The king ascends on that ladder which his father Ra has made for him. Horus and Seth take the arms of this king, and they take him to the Duat. So, while the pyramid texts do have a focus on Osiris, and those passages tend to portray Seth negatively, we do have the more neutral and positive references. And Seth is presented as a respectable, powerful figure, who will assist the deceased as they journey to the afterlife. It emphasises the point that Seth's tale is not entirely negative. He is violent, he is dangerous, but he can be a friend. Moving forward, we come to our second collection of texts. These are the coffin texts, which appear on ancient Egyptian coffins, starting around 2000 BCE. The coffin texts frequently draw on the earlier pyramid texts, some of them are actually direct copies of the earlier examples, but the coffin texts also have their own unique stories and references. 
We'll start with some of the passages that describe the conflict between Horus and Seth. This conflict is referenced in the pyramid texts, but it's more common and even more detailed in the coffin texts. For example, in Coffin Text 9, we have a description of the terrible injuries that these gods inflicted on one another. In one famous scene, Seth tore out the eye of Horus, mutilating his visage and causing him great distress. But Horus later got his own revenge, and removed something else from Seth's body. In Coffin Text 9, we get a reference to, quote, It was he, Horus, who tore off the testicles of Seth, end quote. So while Seth removed the eye and thus diminished Horus' power, Horus got his own revenge, removing Seth's potency. This is an interesting little episode, and it probably reflects some ancient Egyptian attitudes towards masculinity and the importance of certain sexual organs. The mutilation or removal of the testicles parallels nicely with another episode from the contendings of Horus and Seth. In that tale, Seth attempted to assert sexual dominance over Horus. He tried to seduce or sexually assault the younger god. But thanks to the cunning of Isis and Horus's own trickery, Seth is deceived, and ultimately he becomes pregnant with his own seed an incident that causes him great humiliation before the gods. This scene, along with the removal of Seth's testicles, might give us a glimpse into ancient Egyptian attitudes towards masculinity itself. Both of these punishments, the removal of his testicles and the consumption of seed which makes him pregnant, attack the masculinity of Seth as an individual. The idea might be that Seth is effectively feminized, first through damage to his male sexual organs, and then by the forced performance of a female biological role, when Seth is made pregnant. Alternatively, you can view the removal of Seth's testicles as an attempt to pacify or calm the god. One of the defining characteristics of Seth is aggression, a sort of testosterone-laden bravado. A great warrior, skilled in combat, but not exactly thoughtful or cunning. In that sense, the removal of the god's testicles, the removal of his sexual potency, might be a way to calm him down and help him fit more comfortably into an ordered, tidy society. Again, that touches on deeper elements of ancient Egyptian attitudes towards sexuality, behavior, identity, and the physical form. We'll try to explore all of those in the future, but for now, it's worth noting that the removal of Seth's testicles may have another dimension. It is not necessarily a punishment, but rather might be a way of subduing or controlling his more aggressive tendencies. Personally, I suspect that the calming effect is the one that is primarily intended. But again, we'll come back to that in the future. For now, let's get back to the coffin texts as a whole, their depictions of Seth and the tales around this god. Later, we hear more tales of Horus's victory over Seth, and how this could benefit the deceased. In Coffin Text 12, for example, we hear, quote, The gods spoke on behalf of Horus, and they overthrew Seth for him. And they shall speak on behalf of the deceased, and overthrow his enemies for him. This text fits into the classic depiction of Seth as the enemy of Osiris and Horus, 
the antagonist or opponent of the ruling lineage. We hear that later in Coffin Text 37, which says, O Osiris, behold that enemy who is among humans. They have come, having joined together with Seth. He has disturbed your weariness. End quote. Again, Seth is an enemy, one that joins with other antagonistic powers and disturbs the peaceful slumber in death of Osiris himself. In Coffin Text 50, we get a rather explicit reference to Seth as an attacker. In this text, quote, Behold, Seth has come in his own body, and he has said, I will cause the god's body to fear. I will inflict injury on him. I will slaughter him. End quote. Here, Seth does his pre-boxing match trash talk, and we should take that seriously. Seth is the great of strength, Aa Pekti, and he is renowned as a vicious and powerful warrior. Nevertheless, Seth's attack will fail, because the powers of Osiris and Horus are supported by the other deities. But Seth is the antagonist, and these coffin texts reflect that classic image. That being said, the coffin texts also give us references to Seth as a more helpful deity. In Coffin Text 16 and 17, we hear the following, quote, You, the deceased, are Horus, with his white crown on his head. Isis nursed Horus, the nurse of Horus nursed Horus, and the powers of Seth served Horus, over and above his own powers, End quote. That's an interesting text. It seems to describe the upbringing of Horus, and the various deities involved in his caregiving, but it includes Seth among those caregivers, one who apparently benefited Horus even more than his own strength. It's not clear if this is a reference to Seth literally being helpful, or if it comes from that earlier theme in the pyramid texts, where whatever Seth does to his enemies only makes them stronger. I suspect the latter is what is intended, but Egyptian mythology is flexible, to say the least. And while a god might be terribly antagonistic in one story or reference, they might be more helpful in another, and the two versions seem to coexist. So despite his antagonistic role, Seth can be helpful, even if it's indirectly or unintentionally. But sometimes he's explicitly useful. In Coffin Text 519, for example, the deceased is described as follows, Quote, Hail, deceased one, raise yourself up upon your iron bones and your golden flesh, for this body of yours belongs to a god. Your body will not decay, it will not rot, it will not be destroyed. The warmth that is upon your mouth is the warmth that issues from the mouth of Seth. And the winds of the sky will be destroyed if this warmth, Seth's breath, is destroyed. The sky will be deprived of the stars if that warmth which is on your mouth is lacking. May your flesh be born to life. May your life be longer than the life of the stars. End quote. I really like this one. First of all, we get a reference to iron bones and golden flesh. The golden flesh is a classic image of the Egyptian deities. Many gods are described as having skin of yellow gold, their bones are white silver, and their hair and eyebrows are precious gems or lapis lazuli. It's all terribly gaudy, and I imagine if you showed the Egyptian gods as they are actually described, 
they would look like a Met Gala presentation gone crazy. But this one does have an interesting reference. Instead of bones of silver, the deceased is described as having bones of iron. We'll explore that in more detail later in the episode, but for now, just keep it in mind. Seth, like many gods, has flesh of gold, but uniquely, his bones are iron. The coffin texts, like the pyramid texts before them, present a nuanced picture of Seth. On the one hand, there are the negative episodes, Seth's crime against Osiris, and his conflict with Horus, that saw great physical harm done to each combatant. But there are also the neutral and positive references as well, in which Seth and Horus are reconciled to assist the deceased, and Seth can be a powerful friend in one's journey to immortality. Just as the pyramid texts described Seth and Horus taking the deceased king up to the Duat, here you can even find Seth bestowing his power upon the deceased, helping them to live as long as the stars. We'll take a quick break for now. I don't know about you, but that was a lot of religious literature and mythology. After the break, we'll come to the New Kingdom texts, most notably the Book of the Dead, and we'll also discuss some of the archaeological evidence for Seth and his religion. There are temples to Seth within Egypt, and archaeologists have found them. Within those temples, they have also found intriguing artifacts and remains, that give hints at the popular veneration and imagery of the god. That is after the break. See you in a moment. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The pyramid texts appear in the Old Kingdom around 2400 BCE. The coffin texts appear in the Middle Kingdom, around 2000 BCE. Then we come to the New Kingdom, beginning around 1500 BCE, approximately, and continuing for several centuries. It is in this era that we get a proliferation of texts related to the underworld. The most famous is the Book of the Dead, more accurately known as Going Forth by Day, Peret M. Heru. There are other texts from this period, such as the Book of Gates, the Book of the Hidden Chamber, also known as That Which Is in the Underworld, or Amduat, the Book of Caverns, the Book of Newt, and many more besides. We have covered some of these in the podcast so far, 
and we will cover the others in the future as they become prominent. Today, I'll keep my focus on three texts that appeared during the early New Kingdom, and would have been relevant around the time of King Seti I. These are the Book of the Dead, the Book of Amduat, and the Book of Gates. First up, the Book of the Dead. This text, which survives on the walls of tombs and in countless elaborate papyri, is easily the most well-known and probably the most comprehensive description of the Egyptian afterlife and the ways a deceased soul can reach it. Naturally, the god Seth, along with Osiris and Horus, appears frequently in the Book of the Dead. But unlike Horus and Osiris, Seth tends to appear euphemistically. The artists might draw an animal or a symbol that is connected with the god, but doesn't show him in his classic form. The same is true for the texts, which will go out of their way to describe Seth by some of his titles, but don't name him nearly as often as they do the other gods. Once again, Seth appears in a variety of forms. Sometimes he is antagonistic and dangerous, other times he is neutral, and sometimes he is a powerful friend indeed. Let's begin. First, we have utterance number four in the Book of the Dead. This first appeared in the mid to late 18th dynasty, and it refers vaguely to the competition between Horus and Seth. In this passage, the deceased claims the identity of Jehuti, or Thoth, Lord of Wisdom and Writing, and they describe themselves as, quote, I am the one who separates the two companions. This is a reference to Horus and Seth, and their battles which Thoth had to separate. Other references to the competition include utterance number 17 in the Book of the Dead. This appears in the early 18th dynasty, and in one section it says, I, the deceased, have filled the eye of Horus. After it was damaged on the day of the fight between the two companions, what is that day? It is the day on which Horus fought with Seth, when Seth inflicted injury on the face of Horus, and when Horus took away the testicles of Seth. End quote. So we get a repetition of that dualistic injury, how Seth mutilated the visage of Horus and took away his eye, and then Horus feminized Seth by removing his testicles and potency. The deceased is clearly identifying with Horus. He is one who renews that eye, helping to heal the god and give him strength for the battle. So in Book of the Dead 17, Seth is still in his antagonistic role. And generally speaking, this is the way it goes when referencing the conflict between the two gods. The deceased wants to identify with the legitimate ruler, Horus and his father Osiris. They don't want to identify with the usurper or the enemy. So this is a common theme in the Book of the Dead, at least when it references that conflict. We also get some very negative depictions of Seth that really denigrate the god and describe him as something quite vile. In Utterance 17, for example, the deceased describes, quote, As for that god, the male of the Ba souls, who licks up decay, it is Seth. Later in the same chapter, the deceased recites the following, quote, May you, gods, rescue the deceased, who is before that great god, the male of the Ba souls, who licks up decay and lives on rotting, the keeper of the darkness, the one of whom those in their weakness are afraid. What is that god? 
it is Seth, end quote. This passage is quite evocative, presenting Seth as a kind of wretched bottom feeder. He is described as Neseb Yuwu, or one who lives on decay. You could also translate this as one who lives on dread, one who lives on death, or simply one who lives on wrongdoing. For those who have played the game Elden Ring, this might be similar to the loathsome dung eater. Seth is also described as one who lives on rotting, ankh em huau. This could also be translated as one who lives on worries, or one who lives on foulness. Alternatively, it could be one who lives on Owen Wilson. Wow. Again, the point is, Seth is a foul being, who, in the dark recesses of the night, consumes anything in order to live, but he is not a clean or pure deity. This is probably the most negative of the depictions, at least in the three corpuses we have seen so far. We don't usually get such harsh imagery around Seth. He might be described as the enemy or one who committed great crimes, but he's usually given some respect as a skilled or mighty warrior. It's not often that we hear about him as someone who is vile and detestable. But, within the context of the Book of the Dead, as the deceased tries to repel all chaos, falsehood, and deceit, they may occasionally need to denigrate that god in order to reach the kingdom of Osiris. Strangely enough, the very same text, chapter 17 in the Book of the Dead, also has a positive description of Seth. In this passage, the deceased proclaims, quote, Hail, lords of that which is ma'at, or that which is true, who set slaughter upon that which is false, who remove all the falsehood that attaches to me. These lords of what is ma'at are Seth, together with Isedes, the lord of the West. End quote. So in this passage, Seth is anything but an enemy or a disgusting being. He is a very lord of ma'at, a defender of the cosmic and natural order. It's a strange contradiction, given that it appears in the very same chapter as those descriptions of Seth living on decay and eating that which is rotting. But hey, that's Egyptian religion for you. Extremely complicated, sometimes contradictory, but endlessly fascinating. Other passages within the Book of the Dead present both negative and somewhat ambiguous depictions of Seth. In chapter 23, for example, we hear about the opening of the mouth that Horus performs for Osiris. In this chapter, quote, Horus has opened the mouth of the deceased, using the tool with which he opened the mouth of his father, Osiris. He used the sky metal, or meteoritic iron, that came from Seth, the tool with which the mouth of gods is opened. End quote. So in this chapter, we get a small reference to Horus performing his proper duties as a son, but also using a tool that belongs to Seth. The specific reference to sky metal, BR in pet, connects with that earlier coffin text example, where Seth was described as having bones of iron. So it seems that even in a ritual like the opening of the mouth, a tool associated with Seth was still appropriate and even useful. Heck, it was powerful. Seth's tool is one that opens the mouth of the very gods. Another one of the negative references comes in Utterance 65. This is from the early 18th dynasty, and the deceased is proclaiming their innocence of any wrongdoing. In this chapter, we hear the following, quote, Do not seize me, the deceased, 
as plunder for Osiris. I have never been in the gang of Seth. Allow me to sit at the throne of Ra. Allow Osiris to go forth, true of voice, against Seth, and against the conjurations of Seth, like the crocodile, twice over. End quote. So here, the deceased disavows any association with the Lord of Chaos, and he begs that Osiris will go forth, justified, to prevail over his rival. It's back to that category of Seth as the antagonist and opponent of the ruling lineage, which is standard stuff, but we also get the nice idea that certain violent animals, like the crocodile, are the creations or conjurations of Seth. It also reminds us of the conflict between Horus and Seth, when, at one moment, the two gods transformed themselves into hippopotami and fought violently within the Nile. So certain dangerous beasts are particularly associated with Seth, and this gives us a window into the Egyptian view of the natural world, at least how they understood it in religious terms. Finally, the Book of the Dead does give references to the positive attributes of Seth, in particular his role as a great warrior who defends Ra from all enemies. In utterance number 32, that first appears in the 19th dynasty, we hear the following, quote, Back, crocodile of the West, the abomination of you is in my belly. I have swallowed the core of Osiris. I am Seth. So in this passage, the deceased identifies with Seth in order to repel dangerous beasts or demons. The same theme appears in chapter 39, which is from the early 18th dynasty. In this passage, we hear the following, quote, Apep, or Apophis, the enemy of Ra. Your crew is powerful, but you are counted, or known. Move positively, with no evil obstacle coming out from your mouth. I am the sun, Seth, who clears the turbulence of the storm, and circling within the horizon of the sky. Here, we get the idea of Seth as the lord of storms a being of unfathomable natural power, who rages over the deserts and the seas, and, most importantly, drives away and defeats the enemy Apep or Apophis. This passage illustrates that core theme that Seth, while violent and antagonistic, can also be a force for good. When his violence is properly channeled, it can defend the very order of the universe. Finally, there is an extended description of Seth as a defender of Ra, in utterance number 108, which first appears in the mid-18th dynasty, the deceased claims great powers to protect Ra from any enemy. Here, they reference Seth in detail. Quote, the deceased knows the name of this serpent that is upon its mountain. The serpent's name is one that is in its flame. After the events of the day, the serpent will turn his eyes to Ra, and then the solar bark of Ra will stop with great astonishment. Then the serpent will gorge the seven cubits of water. But Seth will fend him off with a spear of metal to force the serpent to spew out all that he has swallowed. Then Seth will take the serpent in his grip, and he will speak in a powerful word, saying, Back, serpent, at the metal point that is in my hand. As I stand holding you, so that the sailing of Ra's boat may be smooth. End quote. 
This is probably the most explicit description of Seth defending Ra and driving away the enemies who might threaten the god. It's elaborate, dramatic, and quite fun. One of my favourites from The Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead, or The Book of Going Forth by Day, continues the traditions laid down by the pyramid and coffin texts before it. It presents Seth in a variety of guises, sometimes as an antagonist who slew Osiris and battled with Horus. Then the text veers into more neutral and positive descriptions, referencing the power of Seth and his iron bones, and his ability to defend the sun god Ra on his nighttime journey. But the Book of the Dead also goes deeper into the denigration of Seth, describing him as a wretched, bottom-dwelling thing, one that lives on filth and decay. These references may have existed earlier, but they are quite explicit here, and we'll see this theme elaborated in different ways in the other New Kingdom texts. We have two more texts from the early New Kingdom that relate to the Egyptian underworld, and which include Seth. These are the Book of the Hidden Chamber, also known as the Amduat, and the Book of the Gates. We'll cover these works together because they both describe similar subjects, and they both include far fewer references to Seth than the earlier corpuses. Again, these references can range from negative to neutral or positive, carrying on the traditions of the ambiguous Seth. In the Book of the Amduat, or that which is in the Netherworld, Seth only appears a few times. At the very start of the Amduat, we have one reference to him, when the deceased, quote, enters into the western door of the horizon, Seth takes his place at the riverbank. It is 120 Iteru in this doorway, before the riverboat reaches the Duat dwellers, end quote. In this passage, Seth seems to be a watchman standing near the very entrance to the Duat or underworld, and as the deceased soul passes by, sailing on a riverboat, Seth is watching over the situation. It's slightly ambiguous, but the god is definitely not antagonistic in this particular scene. Later, in hour number two of the Amduat, we have a curious deity. It is a human male, but he has two heads. One of these heads is a falcon, Horus. The other is that strange animal of Seth. The deity is called Herfi, which in English might translate as Two-Face. Have you come across this? Yes, I am familiar with this syndrome. She's a Two-Face. <laughs> like the Batman villain? If that helps you. Herfi, he of the two faces, combines the images of Horus and Seth into a composite deity. Herfi is a protective being who combines the strength of these two mighty gods, and it seems to convey the idea that following their competitions and disputes, Horus and Seth were reconciled, and they could work together for the betterment of humanity and the gods. Later, in Hour 4, we find another deity who looks like Seth. He is not called Seth, but rather he is named as, quote, the one who separates the Duat. He exists in this form as the image that Horus has made, and separating the two gods upon this road, end quote. This is quite a vague reference, and it seems to be intentional. In this part of the Amduat, the deceased has entered the land of Sokar, also known as Rosetau, 
And here, far from the sunlight of Ra, deities dwell in darkness, and the hieroglyphs describe things euphemistically, even cryptographically, with different symbols substituting for normal words. In other words, this is a land of confusion, the perfect place for a god who embodies a form of Seth to take a watchful position and guard against dangers. Those are the major references within the Book of Amduat, not very many compared to the coffin texts or pyramid texts, but it gets worse. In the Book of Gates, we have just three references to Seth. Two of these are references to that god Herfi, or Two-Face. The god, who combines the powers of Horus and Seth, appears in Hour 10 and Hour 11, in which they separate or oversee different groups of gods who are part of the netherworld. It's all very mysterious. In one image, Herfi stands on the back of a two-headed sphinx, while serpent-headed deities, wearing the crowns of southern and northern Egypt, pull on ropes to assist the bark of Ra. In this hour, hieroglyphs say, quote, When the deceased stands up for Ra, then his two faces, Herfi, will enter into the deceased after Ra passes by. So Herfi, combining Horus and Seth, continues in their protective and helpful role. Then, in hour 11, Herfi stands between two groups of serpents, or Urei, who face in different directions. The god raises his arms, he seems to have four of them, to guide the serpents in different directions. The whole scene is taking place on top of a pair of bows, and the hieroglyphs say, quote, the serpent of the Urei crosses the Duat. The bows carry his two faces, Herfi, as the god's mystery. It is they who proclaim Ra in the eastern horizon of the sky, and they cross the sky after Ra. So in this scene, which takes place quite near the end of the Book of Gates, Herfi, Seth and Horus combined, acts as a herald of the sun god, this is similar to a passage that happened all the way back in the pyramid texts, when Seth and Nephthys were commanded to act as heralds, bringing news of the king's resurrection to the great gods. But here it's taking place in an entirely new form. The Seth element is still there, but Nephthys has disappeared, and Horus has taken her place. It's tempting to see this as a kind of long-term evolution of the god, Around 2400 BCE, Seth and Nephthys together acted as the heralds, but a thousand years later, around 1300 BCE, it is a new hybrid deity who performs the same role. So at least these two references are positive. Herfi is a helpful deity who fulfills important roles. But the last reference to Seth in the Book of Gates is another one of those negative depictions. And it's a doozy. As we round out the religious literature, we have, perhaps, the most insulting depiction of Seth we've seen so far. Halfway through the Book of Gates, between hours 5 and 6, we have a most important scene. This is the Judgment Hall of Osiris. The King of the Dead sits upon his throne, as a long line of deceased souls stand before him. They are the hopeful, trying to enter the underworld, but they must be judged, 
with a scale balancing their heart against the symbol of Ma'at. The judgment hall in which Osiris reigns is arguably the most important part of one's journey to the next life. Naturally, Seth could be a dangerous force in this kind of situation. The god's unpredictability, his chaotic nature, might upset the scales and bring confusion or falsehood to Ma'at. That could easily endanger a soul as they attempt to enter the eternal paradise. So, in the Judgment Hall of Osiris, we have a reference to Seth, but in a strange form. In this scene, while Osiris judges the dead, we see a large black pig. He is being chased away by a baboon who holds a stick and drives him forth. The pig is called Amu, or the Swallower, and the baboon is a stand-in for Jehuti, or Thoth, the Lord of Wisdom and the Protector of Ma'at. The hieroglyphs describe what is happening, quote, When this god, Thoth, has appeared, he causes that which was swallowed to be spat out. The words of the true of voice are exalted, as this god, namely Thoth, renders judgment. Essentially, the baboon, Jehuti or Thoth, drives away Seth in order to protect the hall of Osiris. He forces Seth, the swallower, Amu, to spit up something. It's not clear what, but in context, we can probably guess that the swallower had consumed the good speech or the true voices of the deceased, disrupting the proceeds as they came before Osiris. That is just an educated guess on my part. The hieroglyphs are particularly enigmatic in this scene. In fact, the entire Judgment Hall of Osiris includes what we call cryptographic writing, where most of the hieroglyphs are actually substitutes, either visual or phonetic, for other words. This conceals the exact nature of the text, and ensures that only those privileged, like the king, the priests, or the gods, can actually access this magic. Likewise, this is probably why we don't get Seth in his physical form, as a human male with the animal head, or simply the Seth animal itself. Instead, Seth is reduced to one of the lower animals, the pig, which in ancient Egyptian religious literature is treated as a kind of bottom-dwelling beast. This almost certainly harkens back to that idea of Seth, the antagonist, as a wretched bottom-dwelling feeder. As we saw in the coffin texts earlier, Seth feeds on filth and decay. And for the ancient Egyptians, at least in their religious literature, this was the sort of behaviour associated with pigs. In daily life, pigs would happily consume the items that greater animals like cattle, sheep, and goats would not eat. So at least in their religious language, pigs are considered a lower form. Here, in the Judgment Hall of Osiris, Seth is explicitly associated with these animals, and portrayed as a great black pig. It's the ultimate insult for the god's antagonistic nature. The Book of Gates and the Amduat have the fewest references to Seth out of all the corpuses we've explored so far. They are also the most euphemistic or vague, depicting Seth in other forms different from his classic depiction, and usually referring to him by an alternate identity or title. Within these texts, at least, Seth appears to be a more peripheral figure, less involved in the workings of the Duat. He can still do important work, like watching the entrance and guarding some of the darker, confusing areas. 
but in these works, which are overwhelmingly concerned with the land and kingdom of Osiris, Seth is definitely a sideline figure, much less prominent than the earlier works. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Whew, that's a lot of religious literature. And we didn't even cover every single instance of Seth within these texts. But broadly speaking, you get the general picture. Seth has at least three characteristics or behaviours within the religious literature. Oftentimes, he is the negative, antagonistic force, the god who slew his own brother Osiris and had to be punished by the divine council. The same god contended violently with Horus, the son of Osiris, and the two battled for supremacy and the kingship of Egypt. Within these tales, Seth comes across as a violent, destructive figure. He threw Osiris down onto his side. He gave false testimony to the divine council, committing an act of transgression against truth or ma'at. He mutilated the eye of Horus, and in return received his own wound with the removal of his testicles. These are the tales of Seth the Chaotic, the deceitful, trickster, conman, a god of aggression and disruption, a bravo, a thug, a threat to the divine order, who must be driven away from the halls of Osiris, lest he disrupt the testimony and judgment of the dead. This incarnation or aspect of Seth is a vile figure, a bottom-dwelling animal like a pig or a hippopotamus, prone to unrestrained aggression, something that must be pacified and controlled as much as possible. This is Seth the enemy, Seth the swallower, Seth the father-killer. Then, in a complete reversal, we also have Seth the Protector, the god before whom the sky shakes, who announces to the deities that the Osiris, the deceased king, has come to the Duat, the god who gives energy and strength to the deceased, allowing them to enter the next world and prevail over any dangers. It is this Seth who helped protect Horus when he was a nursing infant a deity who breathes on the mouth of the deceased, giving them breath in the next life, and empowering them like the winds. This Seth can give the deceased soul immortality in the next world, a life longer than that of the stars. And then we have Seth the defender of Ra, who stands on the bark of the solar god and drives away the enemy serpent, Apep or Apophis. This Seth wields a wicked spear, 
and he grabs the serpent and throws him away, clearing the sky and the passage of Ra. This is Seth, the great of strength, the son of Nut, the lord of Ombos, a god well worthy of respect and admiration, for his violence, his aggression, is channeled to a good purpose, the protection of the natural and divine order, Ma'at. A god who knows the name of Ra's enemies, who rages like a storm, and drives away any threats. Finally, we have the ambiguous Seth. A god who is present in the afterlife and the world of the gods, but who neither assists nor obstructs the deceased on their passage. The Seth might appear in his classic form, or as the two-headed deity, Herfi, who combines the powers of Seth and Horus into a deity that watches over the mysterious regions of the Duat. This Seth is neither destructive nor beneficent. He simply is. He performs a key duty within the next world, but he takes little care for those passing through. These three facets, these three aspects to Seth's personality, remind us of the crucial truth. Ancient Egyptian religion, and especially their religious storytelling or mythology, did not operate on a simple binary of good and evil. Seth's aggression, his destructiveness, and his dishonesty were chaotic elements to be sure. They could pose a great threat to certain aspects of the divine and the natural world. Nonetheless, they were inherently part of those worlds, and the ancient Egyptians recognized that Seth had an important part to play within the cosmos. He was not a god to be ignored or banished entirely from existence. You might occasionally remove him from a certain context or situation where his influence was more harm than help, but he could not be denied, at least not for long. And when properly satisfied, pacified, or at least directed, Seth's aggression, his bravado, and his sheer force of strength could be a potent force for the betterment of humanity and the cosmos. Later in Egyptian history, the image, iconography, and storytelling around Seth would change significantly, and in some instances would take a terribly negative turn against the god. But those are tales for the future. By the early 19th dynasty, the age of Seti I, Seth was a complex and effective deity, one worthy of respect and veneration. You didn't want him around all the time, but in other instances, Seth was a very good friend to have around. We are not done with Seth just yet. Today, we have focused on the religious literature, the lore of Seth, if you will. But there is another component that we need to cover. In the next episode, we will visit the cult centers of Seth, at least the ones that existed by 1300 BCE. We will discuss the noteworthy art and iconography of the god, especially from the New Kingdom, when famous monarchs like Seti I, Horemheb, Hatshepsut, and Tutmos III venerated and honored Seth, and treated him as an essential part of the kingship and its iconography. Then, we will explore the curious artifacts that have been left behind, 
including a strange deposit that might represent those iron bones which are referenced in the religious literature. That will be 192C, releasing very soon. Before we go though, I should add one more thing. Way back in episode 3, we recounted the tale of the battle between Horus and Seth. This is recorded on a papyrus from the 21st dynasty, a couple of centuries after King Seti I. But historically, the tale itself is quite likely a product of the 19th dynasty, or even earlier. Since we covered it so long ago, and it is relevant to the tales of Seth as an antagonistic figure, I have attached that story to the end of this episode. It's a fun and incredibly dramatic tale, with all sorts of twists and turns as the two gods battle for supremacy. If you're already well familiar with the contendings of Horus and Seth, feel free to disembark the ride now. Otherwise, stick around after the music and enjoy the tale of great battles. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. I would especially like to thank the priests, my top tier supporters on Patreon. As part of their subscription, every priest gets a special shout out at the end of the episode. At the time of recording, the priests are Veronica, Ashley, Nadin, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry and Linda. These fine folks help to pacify the chaotic force of Seth. Their offerings allow the priests to direct Seth into more productive pursuits. And thanks to their generosity, we can defend the Nile Valley from the winds, the storms, and the waves of the Great Sea, and ensure that the chaotic, dishonest Seth becomes a force for good, rather than a force of harm. Thank you so much for your generosity. And to everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon or simply by listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And now, the contendings of Horus and Seth. An excerpt from episode 3 of the podcast recorded many, many years ago. The original text is found on Papyrus Chester Beatty, which dates to the 21st dynasty. But from the construction of the text, specifically its grammar and language, it is quite likely a product of earlier centuries. Possibly the 19th dynasty, the age of Seti I and Ramesses II, or perhaps even older. There is scholarly debate around that, but we'll cover those in the future. For now, here is the tale of the battle between Horus and Seth, as recorded in the 21st dynasty. Long, long ago, in the millennia before humans rose to rule the earth, Power was given to the great gods to decide our fate and to rule Egypt for eternity. Great beings like the creator, Atum, Ra, the sun god, and Osiris, the lord of agriculture, governed the world of humans and animals. Their rule was good, the very definition of justice and order. When gods spoke, their words were always true. The greatest ruler of all was Osiris. 
Osiris, or Usuru the Mighty One, was the Lord of Eternity, a King of Gods. He was holy of forms and numerous of names. Osiris ruled Egypt with wisdom and justice. He was the definition of a good king. Osiris had a brother, Sutek. He also had two sisters, Iset and Nebethut. These four siblings were the masters of the earth, given power by their divine parents. Osiris and Iset, or Isis, were a couple. Sutek and Nebethut, or Seth and Nephthys, were another. Between them, the majesty of worldly power was shared. Osiris ruled over humanity, and he ensured that Egypt flourished. Farmers looked to him to make their crops grow, and Osiris helped the annual flood to rise and nourish the crops. Over time, the cult of Osiris replaced that of many other gods, and he became the master of a whole range of powers. Osiris's brother, Seth, or Sutek, desired this power for himself. Sutek was lord of the desert and master of storms. The wind swirled at his command and kicked up mighty sandstorms that buried settlements and destroyed crops. A master of confusion, Sutek caused great anxiety and uncertainty for humans living beneath his power. Sutek was synonymous with concepts like turmoil, storms, and rage. His hieroglyph appears in those words. The story goes that Sutek, Seth, envied the rule of Osiris and wanted it for himself. He played a trick on his brother, locking him into a chest and throwing it into the sea. In some versions, Sutek cut Osiris into many pieces and tossed them into the Nile River. When he did this, Sutek upended the natural order of the world. Osiris was dead, and uncertainty reigned over the land. For gods and humans, such disrespect, such chaos was horrendous. Without a good ruler, disorder would flourish, the land would be plunged into darkness. Without a leader, the gods met in council to decide, who should be the new king? Sutek put himself forward, claiming the throne by right of seniority. He was Osiris's brother, after all. Power should go to him. But things were not so simple. Osiris had a son, a child born after his father's death, and capable of taking power as a new ruler of Egypt. The son was Horus. Horus, or Heru, the one who is aloft, came forth to challenge Sutek for the throne. They each put forward their claim, and in the literature of the pharaohs, we have a wonderful story of what happened next. Quote, this is the judging of Horus and Seth, they of mysterious forms, the mightiest of princes and lords. The divine youth, Horus, was seated before the Creator, claiming the office of his father Osiris, the king who brightens the underworld with his shine. But Seth, the great of strength, said, I am Seth, greatest of strength among the gods. I slay the enemy of Ra every day, and no other god can do it. I should receive the office of Osiris. Horus replied to this, saying, It is not good to defraud me in front of the gods, to take the office of my father Osiris away from me. End quote. Horus and Sutek, whom I'll refer to as Seth from here on out, both had strong claims. 
Seth was a mighty being who had accomplished much in the service of the gods. Surely he had proved his worth and deserved the throne. But Horus was the son, and by the order of descent, his claim should be stronger. Uncle and nephew were going head to head, each claiming their right to the throne of Egypt. It is a classic dilemma, like Hamlet or the Lion King. The only question was, who had the stronger claim? The other gods were unable to decide, and there were many arguments back and forth. Finally, Seth got fed up, and challenged Horus directly. If they both sought the throne, they should have a contest. Let the best god win the crown of Egypt. Round one was a trial of endurance. The two gods, capable of shape-shifting, transformed themselves into hippopotami and submerged within the waters of the Nile River. They held their breath. Whoever could stay under the longest would win the contest and earn the kingship for themselves. The two gods went down into the water and waited. On the riverbank, a goddess was watching. The mother of Horus, sister of Seth, Great Iset, or Isis, was concerned at what would happen. Isis was in mourning for her husband, and her fears naturally rose at the thought that Seth, treacherous as he was, might hurt her only son Horus. Isis grew anxious, and decided to act. Isis took a branch and fashioned it into a magical harpoon. She threw the harpoon at Seth, hoping to injure her brother so that he would have to come out of the water and lose the competition. But Isis misjudged her aim, and the harpoon bit deep into the body of Horus instead. Rearing up, Horus the hippopotamus was enraged. The first contest was over, and Seth had won. Horus went away in a huff, and Seth followed him. The uncle pursued his nephew, and found him lying on a mountain. When Seth came upon Horus, lying beneath a tree, he attacked him, hoping to secure his victory once and for all. The next part was quite horrific. Quote, Horus was lying under a tree in the oasis country. Then Seth found him, seized him, and threw him on his back on the mountain. Seth removed Horus's eyes from their sockets and buried them on this mountain. Then he went to the creator and said falsely, I searched for Horus, but I did not find him. Horus's two eyeballs became two bulbs, and towards morning, they grew into lotus flowers. End quote. Seth blinded Horus, tearing his eyes out and burying them. There they transformed into lotus flowers, symbols of rebirth, and they grew on the banks of the oasis. A very pretty scene, but not so good for the god. Horus, lacking eyes, was in trouble. Fortunately, a goddess came along to rescue Horus. Her name was Hathor, or Hathor, one of the most important goddesses, and with her great powers, she was able to heal the wounded Horus. Hathor poured animal milk into Horus's eye sockets, and with her magic, she made new eyes for him. These new eyes were called the Wadjet Eyes, and they became a famous symbol of protection. The Eye of Horus, mighty in its power, was a great emblem. It was associated with immense creative and regenerative power, and it was even said that the Eye of Horus was actually the left eye of the creator himself. I won't go into all of that complicated mythology here. 
suffice to say, the eye of Horus came about at a time of great need, and it served him well. Today, the eye of Horus is synonymous with Egyptian divinity. It is also the symbol for this podcast. The next competition got intensely sexual, so if you have younger listeners or you're not interested in that kind of material, skip ahead about four minutes. After the contest of the hippos and the blinding of Horus, the third competition took place in the bedroom. The story goes that Seth invited Horus to a banquet and tried to seduce him. Horus pretended to acquiesce, and the two went to bed together, whereupon Seth, quote, let his member become stiff, and he inserted it between the thighs of Horus, end quote. Graphic stuff, but this is the ancient world. Sexuality was much more free. What's important here is who was doing the inserting. Seth was the top, which in ancient morality meant that he was the man. This contest was a challenge of masculinity. Seth tried to treat Horus as a woman, to feminize him, in order to prove that the younger god was unfit to rule Egypt. In a patriarchal society, this made perfect sense. Unfortunately, Horus outsmarted him. Horus tricked Seth and fooled him into thinking that he had succeeded when he hadn't. Horus captured Seth's bodily fluid and he took it to his mother, Isis. Isis was horrified, and the two concocted a plan to get revenge on Seth. Horus threw Seth's semen away into the marshes, and gathered his own semen into a pot. They then took Horus's semen to the garden which belonged to Seth. There, they found a number of lettuces growing, and Horus placed his own semen on the lettuce in order that Seth would eat it. It seems that Seth was quite fond of salad, for indeed, he did eat the lettuce which contained Horus's fluid. As a result, Seth became pregnant with the semen of Horus. Horus had got a one-up on his wicked uncle, and as you can imagine, Seth was rather enraged. The furious Seth now turned to the last resort of any unreasonable party. He said to Horus, Come on, we're taking this to court. So, the gods went before the divine council and sat once again in holy judgment. At this point, Seth's attempt to dominate Horus sexually came back to bite him. Seth claimed that he had, quote, done a man's deed to Horus. In other words, Seth claimed victory by right of sexual dominance. It is a strange way to take power over a kingdom, but there it is. Unfortunately for Seth, Horus and Isis's clever thinking had sowed the seeds for his downfall. At this point, Seth claimed victory, but Horus shot back, saying, If you did what you say you did, make your semen announce itself. Seth called out to his semen, expecting it to answer from Horus's buttocks. But it answered from a faraway marsh. Then Horus called out to his semen, and it answered from the stomach of Seth. The contest was clear. Horus had dominated Seth sexually, not the other way around. The crowd roared with laughter, and the Divine Council said, Horus is true, Seth is false. I emphasize this sexual contest for an important reason. To start getting a sense of some of the ancient Egyptians' morals and sexual customs. In their mindscape, it wasn't important who the players were, male or female, hetero or homosexual. 
What was important was which role each partner took. The dominant one was clearly the masculine for them, the submissive one was the feminine. Since their society was inherently patriarchal, particularly in politics, they prized the masculine traits as more suitable, quote-unquote, for their rulers. That could be played out sexually as much as politically. The story progressed through a couple more phases and competitions, which I will explore at another time. In the last phase, the contest reached its worst anger, and the Divine Council came to its last resort. Unable to choose between the brother of Osiris, Seth, and the son, Horus, they decided that the only thing to do was to ask Osiris himself. Now Osiris was dead, of course, but that was no barrier for the gods. They simply wrote a letter to the king, who now lived within the underworld, and asked him his opinion. Who should have the throne? His brother or his son? Osiris responded as you would expect. He said, Are you mad? Give the throne to my son! So that was that. The decision of Osiris could not be challenged, and the gods settled the matter accordingly. They gave the crown to Horus. Quote, After all of this had transpired, the creator said, Bring me Seth, bound up and tied. So Seth was brought, bound as a prisoner, and the god said to him, Seth, why have you resisted being judged, and tried to seize for yourself the office that belongs to Horus? Seth sneakily said, I have done no such thing, my good lord. Let Horus be summoned, and I will give to him the office of his father Osiris. Then Horus received the crown on his head. The gods placed him on the seat of his father, and they said to him, You are the good god of Egypt. You are the good lord of all lands, forever and ever. End quote. Horus was crowned king, and the land came to peace. The tale ends with a celebration of Horus as the king, and a consolation prize for Seth. Seth, defeated, was given a new job, to become the lord of storms, where he, quote, shall thunder in the sky and be feared. Seth accepted this, and the tale ended happily. The text closes by saying, it has come to a good ending in the place of truth. Mm -hmm.